A prince, after a battle with a growing maritime power, sees that his city is about to be taken by the enemy after years of conflict. He flees, taking some of his most trusted advisors with him, and through his journey, this last prince of his people ends up founding a great empire. This probably sounds familiar and brings to mind the end of the Trojan War. Aeneas, the legendary Trojan prince mentioned in Homer's Iliad and immortalized by Virgil, the ancestor of Romulus and Remus, founders of Rome, fits the role of that prince. But this isn't the story of Aeneas. This takes place 5,000 miles away and more than 2,500 years later. It is the story of Paramiswara, maybe the last prince of his people, being defeated and fleeing to start a kingdom that would become a regional power and a major influence on the local culture today. This is The Almost Forgotten. Welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at historical lives that seem to have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This week, we take a look at Paramaswara, a prince who fled his kingdom and founded an empire. Paramaswara's story centers around the Straits of Malacca in the late 1300s and early 1400s. It might be the most important waterway in the world today. The Economist says that 40% of the world's maritime trade passes through it, and only the Strait of Hormuz which is the only way in or out of the Persian Gulf, sees more oil shipped through it. Today, three countries share the straits. To the north is Malaysia. To the south is the westernmost of Indonesia's large islands, Sumatra. And at the easternmost end is Singapore, at the end of the Malay Peninsula, which, not surprisingly, has been a trading post for at least 2,000 years thanks to its location. The straits were nearly as important for global commerce in Paramaswara's time as well. But before we get into trade, let's talk about the world in the mid-14th century when he was born. Western Europe was about to emerge from a thousand-year period of relative stagnation, and the Hundred Years' War was just getting going, as was the Black Death. Spain had been mostly retaken by Castilla, Portugal, and Aragon, while the Holy Roman Empire cut through the center of the continent. In the east, Poland and Lithuania were a unified power, and Venice now dominated the eastern Mediterranean. The Turks would soon end the dying Eastern Roman Empire in Constantinople. The Middle East and North Africa was ruled by successor states to the Caliphates. In the West, the fiercely independent, but still Muslim, Berbers had taken charge. But the East, with Baghdad formerly the center of the Muslim world, had been shattered by the Mongol invasions of the 1200s. From the Ukraine through Central Asia, Khanates were the governing bodies. But the time of the Mongols was nearing its end, as evidenced by the recent conquests of Tamerlane. In Southwest Asia, sultanates were appearing in place of the Mongol kingdoms. In China, the Mongols had been expelled, and the powerful Ming dynasty was starting to establish itself. India was not united, although the Delhi Sultanate was a major power. The Mali Empire, from which Mansa Musa had launched his pilgrimage a generation earlier, was still ascendant in Western Africa. The Kingdom of Zimbabwe was the dominant culture in southern Africa. In the Americas, Tenochtitlan had recently been founded, but the alliance of city-states that would become the Aztec Empire was still a few decades away. The Kingdom of Cusco was now established, but it would be almost a century before Pachacuti took charge and started the aggressive expansion 
that would create the Incan Empire. And in Southeast Asia, the end of a great maritime power, the kingdom of Srivijaya, had finally come. Paramaswara was a prince of Srivijaya, a waning empire, centered on the island of Sumatra, that large eastern island in modern-day Indonesia that makes up the southern border of the Straits of Malacca. We don't really know if this was one singular empire, perhaps with different dynasties over the centuries, or something more like one empire after the other, because we don't have a ton of original evidence about them. The Cambridge History of Southeast Asia says, quote, The history we are talking about is a modern reconstruction based mainly upon Chinese and Arabo-Persian texts, a few inscriptions, and, increasingly and most promisingly, archaeological evidence. The Malays themselves have preserved virtually no memory of what we now call Srivijaya, a generic term for the succession of thalassocracies centered in southeastern Sumatra from the 7th to the 14th century, unquote. It was what is referred to as a thalassocracy, a primarily maritime kingdom without much influence on the land outside of the coastal region or a few key islands. A few examples of these are the Minoans, the Phoenicians, and later Carthage, as well as Venice and Genoa. Srivijaya had influence beyond Sumatra, into eastern Java and much of the Malay Peninsula. After its demise, it left archaeological sites, but modern Indonesians had no memory of them. Our written records of the kingdom come only from outside sources. The empire began eight or 900 years prior, perhaps in the mid-600s, and it conquered the Malayu kingdom after a century or so, pulling in that kingdom's vast wealth. They soon controlled the Straits of Malacca and the Sunda Strait, the two major maritime choke points on either side of Sumatra, and expansion continued. There is evidence of presence as far as modern-day Cambodia as well as the Philippines. It appears the Khmer dynasty forced them out of Indochina, and they remained rivals with the Khmer as well as Champa in southern Vietnam for centuries. Srivijaya was a seafaring empire, interacting with merchants throughout the world and controlling significant regions within the maritime Silk Road. They charged tolls to sail through their waters and grew in prestige and power. There is evidence that they colonized Madagascar off the southeastern coast of Africa, and to the east their influence may have stretched as far as the Philippines. The kingdom of Srivijaya was probably at its most powerful in the 10th century, but soon they began to succumb to external pressures. In 1025, the Chola kingdom based in southern India and Sri Lanka invaded the lands of Srivijaya. They took Sumatra and the Malay Peninsula and asserted some dominance, but eventually their influence waned and Srivijaya recovered much of the territory. At times, even after this, they may have held lands across the whole region, but they never really regained their level of power and influence, especially with pressure from Thailand in the north and the Majapid Empire from Java, that big island to the east, where Jakarta sits today. As the Cambridge history goes on to say, quote, The Cholas oversaw commerce in the western waters of the Bay of Bengal. The Javanese directed commerce in the Java Sea and points east, but opportunities in these areas were peripheral in comparison with Srivijaya's splendid position at the throat of the trade routes. Srivijaya could not be destroyed by its rivals, but it could be plundered and, for short periods of time, pressed into vassalage. Any power that could dominate the Straits of Malacca stood to benefit enormously from the commerce that passed through." Unquote. 
One prince of the late empire named Sang Nula Utama colonized a small island to the north. He was probably an ancestor of Paramaswara by a few decades. This was in the 1320s, and the island held a town called Temasek. Legend and historical blurriness surrounds the city. It was probably a minor Srivijayan port town. It is logical to assume that it was under the Srivijayan sphere of influence. If not, it's possible this was more of a conquest than a colonization. Regardless, Sang Nila Utama called his new kingdom, under the Srivijayan empire that he belonged, Singhapura. Singhapura was just where you'd expect it to be, and Sang Nila Utama and his descendants ruled successfully, garnering wealth, reputation, and notoriety. Unfortunately for his descendants, the Srivijayan Empire was destroyed as the Majapahit Empire grew in its stead. Majapahit started out in eastern Java and seems to have been able to conquer much of the Srivijayan Empire, eventually making its way to Sumatra. A great Majapahit warlord and prime minister, Gajamada, made quick work of the surrounding kingdoms. His conquests of Java, Sumatra, and southern Borneo helped form the basis for Indonesia's borders today. In 1350, a new Majapahit king, Hayam Waruk, sent Gajamada and a fleet of close to 200 vessels north to try to take Singapore. They failed, and Singapore's royal family, perhaps the last remaining princes of the Srivijaya, continued to rule as their neighbors grew in strength. This is where Paramaswara enters our story, becoming the king of Singapore in 1389, when his father died and Majapahit was at their doorstep. Unlike the story of the Iliad, the enemy was not literally waiting outside of the city for the right moment to attack, but they had been eyeing Singapore for a few decades at this point, and were waiting for the moment to strike again. Who was this new king? Well, Paramaswara might not have even been his name, although it may be what he was called. It's a term that had a few meanings. It's derived from a Sanskrit word, Parameshvara, meaning supreme being. But in this context, it could just mean prince, or sultan, or a sort of local ruler. It's possible his name was actually Sikander Shah, which is what the Malay annals call him. They also call him a Raja, giving a hint to the Indian influence, as well as the Buddhist influence in this part of the world at the time. Other sources mention an Iksander Shah, or Sri Iksander Shah, which can be attributed to him, but... We'll stick with Paramaswara as his name here. Besides the Malay annals, one of the main sources for Paramaswara that we know of is an account of a Portuguese traveler named Tome Pires, who wrote a travelogue of India, Southeast Asia, and East Asia in the early 1500s. He actually named Paramaswara as the prince who established Singapore after fleeing the Majapahits from Sumatra. This would have even been more of a story, fleeing Sumatra and then fleeing Singapore, but Chinese records suggest that this probably wasn't true, as the kingdom had most likely been established already. So, we go with the Malay Chronicles, which were actually written later than Pires's Suma Oriental, but were more focused on the local region and probably had a better understanding of the intricacies and confusing naming conventions of the region. So, Assuming he was indeed born as the heir apparent to the small kingdom of Singapore, overlooking the maritime spice trade routes, well, not much is known about his life before becoming king. It's not quite right to describe him as born into a dynasty of merchant kings, but rather from kings in a land of merchants. 
the kingdom was small and often threatened. Their support from the Chinese had disappeared when the Ming replaced the Yuan dynasty, so he may not have done much sightseeing around the region. Paramaswara was a king, and the first thing we know about him as a king has to do with one of his concubines. He seems to have been enamored with the daughter of one of his ministers, a bandahari or treasurer named Sang Ranjuna Tapa. The Malay annals say that the rest of Paramaswara's quote, mistresses concerted against her and accused her of infidelity, unquote. This is a little confusing as we usually associate the term mistress with infidelity. It's probably safe to assume that these women were other concubines and this particular one was a favorite. Maybe she was a trusted advisor. We'll never know why they did this. It could be fear of her influence or simple jealousy. Regardless of her role, their intrigue succeeded in their initial plan to get her out of the way. She was most likely killed in a horrific and public way. The Malay annals say she was impaled, and her father was not exactly pleased with the punishment. He lamented to Paramaswara that if it was true that she did him wrong, she could be executed without the attached shame. This one line, with the minister trying to appeal to his sense of decency, again suggests to me that she was something more than just a concubine. The Malay annals do make it seem like this was court intrigue, rather than something as simple as infidelity. As Cyrus the Great and his general Harpagus can tell you, if you're going to mess with a high-ranking advisor's family, you should probably make sure they can't do something about it. And Sangranjuna Tapa did something about it. It's worth noting he was probably a local from the island rather than an imported Srivijayan nobleman who had loyalties to the last prince of his people. After his daughter's horrific punishment, he contacted the leader of the Majapahits. His letter was simple enough. If you want Singapore, come take it. You have friends here. Apparently, an expedition of 300 ships and 200,000 soldiers was the result. Suddenly, the Singaporeans were under attack and met the invaders outside of the city. They were beaten back behind the walls of the city and remained under siege by a massive army. Paramaswara ordered his trusted advisor and good buddy Sangranjunatapa to issue rice to his soldiers. Not surprisingly, he didn't act on those orders. The treasurer then opened the gates of Singapore, and the enemy entered the city. The Malay annals use terms like blood flowed, amok, and carnage, but I won't dwell on that. There is little doubt that it was not pretty for the inhabitants of the city. Majapahit doesn't play much of a role in the rest of this story, so before we leave them, let's figure out why. There are a few possibilities, but the Malay annals give us some clues. They said that the house of the treasurer, Sangranjunatapa, faded, and rice ceased to be planted on the land. It, is also, it also said during the conquest, quote, blood flowed like an inundation, unquote. So, what happened? We don't really know, but it seems that Singapore wasn't high on the list of Majapahit priorities. Succession crises and expansion by their neighbors preoccupied the young empire and led to a bit of a decline. It's possible they essentially raised Singapore and left it to disappear. The location was too good to go away forever, but it was pretty quiet for a century. Now, this is complete speculation on my part, but let's say Singapore was the last Srivijayan outpost. Majapahit would have seen Srivijaya as the greatest empire in their region for a millennia, 
and one that they had essentially demolished in less than a century. Some amount of reverence, fear, and animosity may have led them to simply stamp out their last outpost. Singapore, to them, may have been the end of Srivijaya, and they might have just destroyed the city and left. Perhaps unknown to them, though, was that the last prince of the Srivijaya, Parameswara, survived. He had seen the writing on the wall. He had fought the enemy outside the gates of the city, but there was no food and no chance. Like Aeneas, the last prince of the mighty empire knew it was time to flee his stronghold. So he fled. He moved north and settled in a swamp. The thing about the swamp was, he suddenly had to deal with lizards and crocodiles and all kinds of nasty critters, so he and his retainers decided the swamp wasn't the best place to stay. He also probably didn't want people to say it was daft to build a city on the swamp, only to watch it sink into the swamp. So instead, he made his way to a small Malay fishing village on the banks of the river Bartam, and decided to take root there. It's not far from Singapore. It's just under 150 miles, or less than a three-hour drive these days. But for Paramaswara, it was far enough up the coast of the Malay Peninsula north and west that Majapahit didn't apparently bother him anymore. And so he founded a new city, but it wasn't all from scratch. Assuming he took a retinue of advisors, at least the ones whose offspring he hadn't tortured, Paramaswara probably had at least some of the administrative knowledge of a once formidable maritime kingdom. If he could set up the right kind of city in the right spot, he might be able to build himself a littoral power base. And with that knowledge, Paramaswara, having left Singapore around the age of 32, founded the city of Malacca on the southern shores of the Malay Peninsula. Supposedly, to add to the drama of the story, the name is derived from a Malay word meaning hidden fugitive. It became a major power in global trade, and his city became the major 15th century seaport in the region. To understand what he did there, it's important to understand what the world of maritime trade looked like in Eurasia. East-West trade around 1400 was a global endeavor, at least the part of the globe that was known to Europeans and Asians. Starting in the West, maritime trade centered around the Mediterranean and was controlled by two seaborne empires, Venice and Genoa, which became trade centers for merchants from northern and western Europe. The markets in these cities would contain the exotic goods from the East that would then get loaded onto carts and work their way up through Europe. Moving east to the Middle East, the Muslim world was no longer one contiguous country, but the successor kingdoms to Muhammad's empire still acted as the entryway for goods flowing from Asia into Europe. They had been doing this for 700 years by 1400, by force of geography, controlling the land between the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean, benefiting greatly from being traders, transporters, and middlemen. From there, goods sailed east. The Muslim traders had mastered the timing of sailing with the monsoon winds east to the western coast of India, and the port of Cambay in Mughal India served as a major fulcrum of this trade network. This was one of the biggest trading hubs of the day, and goods from Europe and Eastern Asia were offloaded here to make the journey in either direction. East from there, sailing around the southern tip of India, the next major region of trade was the narrow Strait of Malacca where any ship that wanted to make its way to East Asia would likely stop. Overland, the strait could be avoided, but it could cost an additional month or more to get to the eastern shores of China, where most of the population lived, from there. 
It was along this waterway where Paramaswara set up his new city, and he and his court knew all about the mechanics of merchant shipping. Beyond the straits lay the kingdoms of Indochina, the Khmer Empire, Diviet, and Champa, before you get further east to China, Korea, and Japan. The ships that made these voyages were populated by locals, as well as the Muslims of the Middle East and some of their Jewish and Eastern Christian counterparts. Persians were living in large numbers as far east as Canton, modern Guangzhou, China, from as early as the 600s. In the late 800s, the city was sacked by a rebel Chinese army, and supposedly 120,000 Muslims, Christians, and Jews were slaughtered. Even if that number is a gross exaggeration, and we don't know if it is, the fact that 120,000 Westerners could have been living in East China at the time is sort of mind-boggling, and a testament to how connected the world really was. After this attack, Zaitun, now known as Chu Wanzhou, became the biggest port and the eastern terminus of the Silk Road. Traveling from Venice to Zaitun seems fanciful, and it was extremely dangerous, between the unreliability of sea travel, pirates, and bad weather. In actuality, very few people made the entire trip. The Maritime Silk Road was a sea highway with stops along the way. The Venetians and the Genoans made money because they were able to buy goods in the Arab world and sell them back in Europe at a markup, and vice versa. The Arabs connected the Italians to the Indian Ocean, the Indians connected the Arabs to Southeast Asia, and the Southeast Asians connected the Indians to China. Even those Persians living abroad usually only made one leg of the journey. This was in part just because of the amount of time each of these trips took. You might be living in Cambay and traveling to the Malay Peninsula for two months, trading goods, taking two months to return. Doing two legs of a journey could happen, but not more than that over the course of a year. And the predictable but extremely season-dependent winds often made more than one round trip impossible. As these networks grew, the merchants needed to know where they were going and how they would be treated when they arrived. The need for safe ports, favorable to trade both in terms of infrastructure and governance, was essential. Paramaswara's Malacca City was one of these ports. But it wasn't the only port on the peninsula, and let's not forget we're talking about a strait here. There was still the island of Sumatra on the other side, and cities there were also used as trading ports. So why did it work out so well in Malacca? Well, it all had to do with governance and trade. Basically, Paramaswara kept his import duties, the fee the city charged to bring in goods, lower than those of his rival cities. And the Arabs, Persians, and Indians who actually settled in the city with a family paid even lower duties. Those from the immediate area or the east paid no import duties, and nobody paid an export duty. The import duty was universally understood, low, and enforceable by a civil administration that seemed to actually work. On top of that, the lack of export duties could have a twofold effect. While it encouraged these trading merchants to set up shop in the city, it probably also reduced bribery significantly. If the authorities could only get kickbacks on half of the transactions, this probably encouraged more trade. The law was understood and, although some exceptions surely happened, Merchants knew the rules they were operating under. In an off-quoted piece of Pires's Summa Oriental, 
and despite his inaccurate stuff about the history of the region, in terms of the current events, he was actually there watching this stuff happen. He describes how a committee of local merchants essentially collectively bargained prices. Quote, As soon as the merchants arrive, they unload their cargo and pay their dues. Ten or twenty merchants gather together with the owners of the said merchandise and bid for it. And by the said merchants, the price was fixed and divided among them all in proportion. Unquote. There's more, but essentially the merchants come in and bid for it and they establish the price. Then they all buy it up at the same price and go sell it to subsequent buyers at a profit. Pires said it was done in an orderly way, in fact, using the word orderly or something like it several times. The result was a metropolitan port city that is hard to imagine existing in the late Middle Ages. Pires was writing about it a hundred years after Paramaswara, so this is the city the prince built, not necessarily the one he lived in. Regardless, he speaks of people from all parts of the world living there, with nearly a hundred languages being spoken. I won't run through the entire list, but he writes of people from modern-day Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Ethiopia, Iran, Yemen, Tanzania, a bunch of Indian cities and kingdoms, Siam, Cambodia, Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, China, as well as Central Asian Turkmens, Christian Armenians, and possibly Venetians or Genoese. Reading through the myriad of smaller kingdoms that actually constitute these modern countries is even more impressive. Paramaswara most likely did not invent this system. Other Asian ports use similar merchant committees for trade, but his experience as prince of a once-powerful maritime kingdom gave him insight on how that system, coupled with the law, order, and duty system he put into place, would encourage merchants to set up shop in his city. This wasn't the monopolistic practices of the Arabs moving spice to Europe or the cartels of the Italian city-states locking up certain markets. Instead, Paramaswara created a place that gave these maritime traders some assurances that their prices would be competitive. I imagine if you were a merchant that had visited the various port cities on either side of the strait, your first visit to Malacca would have you set on returning there the following season. But the last prince of Srivijaya was more than just an economically advanced ruler of a small city-state. As he showed when he brought the wrath of Majapahit into Singapore, he was a leader who governed and made mistakes. The only story we really know from his time in Singapore was an example of some pretty unwise behavior, but in Malacca, he seems to have cleaned up his act a bit. Srivijaya was a key part of the Buddhist expansion to Southeast Asia hundreds of years before, but Paramaswara was now surrounded by Muslim sultanates, and many of the merchants entering his city were Muslim. A small sultanate across the Malacca Strait on the northern end of Sumatra was, at one time, less than a hundred years before Paramaswara, considered the terminus of Muslim lands. But by then the religion had spread further east, around the Kingdom of Singapore, and now the Malacca Kingdom. This small kingdom may have given him the final push to convert to Islam. He did so to marry the Sultan's daughter. Of course, this didn't hurt the city's prospect of getting Persian, Malay, and Javanese Muslim traders to show up either. He created a kingdom that was able to do more than just survive. It succeeded. It became a regional power and established relations with powerful neighbors such as China. Paramaswara is mentioned in the Ming Chronicles and may have even visited China himself to pay tribute. This tribute would have made Malacca a distant protectorate. The Cambridge Histories details the relationship. Quote, The newly established Ming Dynasty of China took an unprecedented interest in Southeast Asia. 
and it showed this interest with large naval patrols during the first two decades of the 15th century. Paramiswara of Malacca took full advantage of this opportunity to place himself under Chinese protection. He welcomed the Chinese fleets, sent envoys to China, and in 1411 personally went to the Chinese capital to demonstrate his loyalty. Malacca quickly became a new version of the Srivijayan model of a Malay-led international entrepot. Unquote. So, did Paramaswara make his empire a client kingdom of China? From China's perspective, sure. But from his perspective, maybe not so much. This relationship would have helped to keep enemies from invading, lest they incur the wrath of China. But China's territory was too far away for any real dominance of his kingdom. China wanted to ensure that its trade with the West remained healthy, and, convinced of its own superiority as the Middle Kingdom, diplomatically this is how it operated. A country with a different perspective of its own place in the world may have preferred to call this an alliance, but essentially it was a big brother telling little brother, do what you want, rule how you want, just remember who's the world's one true power, and keep the trade flowing. Wait, this sounds familiar. It's almost as if China was really just concerned with keeping sea lanes open and trade moving, and was unconcerned with actual territorial holdings and the actions and internal affairs of Southeast Asia. Anyway, Paramaswara's story does not have an action-packed ending. He seems to have died relatively peacefully around 1414, still the sovereign of his kingdom. His son arrived in China in 1414 to announce his death, and the kingdom continued. The Malacca Sultanate, as it came to be known, controlled much of the eastern Sumatran coast and the Malay Peninsula. Thanks to the laws enacted by Paramaswara, it became the most important trading city in the region, the port city commanding the world's foremost maritime choke point. His successors continued the relationship with China, ensuring the kingdom's safety. By the latter part of the 1400s, expansion continued into parts of Indochina and brought Malacca into conflict with kingdoms in Vietnam. Paramaswara helped create the Malay world, as the influence of the culture and languages from the peninsula spread throughout the region on the back of international trade. The Golden Age ended abruptly, rather than with a slow fade. It was still expanding north, up the Malay Peninsula, when it conquered the Kelantan Kingdom in 1506. Then, the Portuguese appeared. In 1511, Afonso de Albuquerque attacked the city. He was repelled, but he attacked again and, despite heavy resistance, he captured it. This spelled the end of the Sultanate and Paramaswara's unique kingdom centered around leveraging the portion of global trade that meandered through his neighborhood. But before it was gone, his kingdom helped connect the world. William Bernstein, in his book A Splendid Exchange, puts it this way, quote, Paramaswara proved the right man in the right place at the right time, canny, attuned to commerce, and possessed of innumerable contacts among both local and foreign traders in Palembang and beyond. Malacca soon became one of the world's commercial fulcrums. Medieval Malacca connected India, the Arab world, and Europe to its west, with China and the legendary Spice Islands to the east, unquote. He was, perhaps, the last prince of the once powerful and far-flung Srivijaya Empire. One of their small cities survived as Singapore. But its enemy finally took over that city when the gates were opened for them. And so he fled Singapore to a small town that had a nice little harbor, and from there, Paramaswara, in many ways, created a new version of his old country. With new influences and new rules to make it more efficient and successful, 
it became one of the true powers of the region, at least until the appearance of the European colonizers. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find maps and pictures on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at almostforgottenpodcast at gmail.com or find me at Twitter at the almost forgot. And if you enjoyed the episode, uh, please go on to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. It is much appreciated. Join me next time when we move back west to the Mediterranean to learn about a man who started out as a pirate but retired as a great admiral, administrator, leader, and a hero to his country. 